I'll encourage you to take your Bibles, go to Isaiah chapter 9. I know you're surprised. Three weeks, same verse. And yet we did Ecclesiastes in like 10 weeks. It's pretty amazing. So, Isaiah chapter 9. Let me go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 9, first six verses. Follow along with me in your copy of the scripture there. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles available in the back. If you don't have a Bible, but you have a device, then let me encourage you to just open that up on uh, Uversion or Bible.org or whatever uh, app you prefer. Go to Isaiah chapter 9 and follow along with me as we go through the first six verses. It says this, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he'll bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You, you have enlarged the nation, and you've increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as, and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. You've shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we come into Isaiah chapter 9, and we've gone over the context a few times, but just to remind you again of where we're at, you have a group of people who are choosing their way instead of God's way. They're trusting in human strength instead of God's strength, and they're up to their neck in darkness. Um, they're, 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 they're swimming in despair. They're drowning in heartbreak. Because they know that their enemy, the Assyrians, who are outside of the city walls, are getting ready to attack, getting ready to come busting through those walls at any moment. And so there is a sense of darkness and despair that is, that is in these people. But Isaiah, thankfully, doesn't leave those people in despair. He doesn't leave them in darkness, but instead Isaiah breathes hope into them. And what he says, in essence, is this, God is greater than the Assyrians, and God promises that, that just as they have experienced grief and darkness, they're going to experience joy and triumph. Because God promises to defeat the enemies of his people once and for all. Now how? How is God going to do that? And as we've looked the past couple of weeks, what we've seen is that God is going to do that through someone who is named Wonderful Counselor. A wonderful counselor, somebody who, who builds rapport with people, somebody who can identify with, with what issues uh, people are struggling with, somebody who listens carefully, somebody who has a plan of action, somebody who has a track record of changed lives. This wonderful counselor, without question, is Jesus Christ. And so he's going to bring about joy, he's going to bring about triumph, he's going to bring about victory through the wonderful counselor, he's going to bring about that victory through the mighty God. And we talked about that last week. We talked about all those heroes of the Old Testament who didn't quite make the cut. They were altogether way too human. And so they were either incomplete in their heroic deeds and weren't able to bring final fulfillment of God's precious promise, 
or they were utter failures. But there's one coming. And this one is coming as a child. And all of the things, all of the struggles, all of the trauma that is built into our lives is going to be solved and satisfied by a child. And not just any child, a child who is the mighty God. This week we get to look at the next name. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. So there's a couple things I need to do. I've got to answer a couple quick questions and then kind of keep moving through. So bear with me. We're going to uh, dabble in a couple of areas. We're going to dabble in etymology. We're going to define a few words. We're going to dabble in theology. And then we're going to dabble in making fun of Frank who thinks he knows etymology and theology. So I hope you're ready. So the first thing is this, everlasting father. So first, you've got to deal with that word everlasting. So, so why, what does that word everlasting mean? I, th- I think we can break it down in our, our minds, but you also need to understand it within the context of what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, listen, all the kings that have come before, they might have been in the line of David. They might have been the, the promised kings who would come in and break a cycle of sin, but, 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 but every single one of them died. But this one that's to come, is different. Verse 7, he tells us that the dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. This, this one who comes, his kingdom will never end. So, it's terrible to talk about this at Christmas, but it's reality. We're familiar with death. Every single one of us in this room has had to deal with death in one form or another. And when you have to, what you realize quickly is we weren't created to say goodbye. That's why it stings so much. But the hope that Isaiah gives by saying that this one who's to come is going to be the everlasting father is that this king is the one who's defeating death. This king is the one who's going to bring hope, who, who has victory over the grave, whose resurrection and the, and the life so that anyone who believes in him can share in that everlasting life because he is everlasting. There's great hope there. He calls him the everlasting father. Now we've got to deal with, with a little something because we've got to be careful. If we're not careful, we're going to end up being heretics and that is not something I want on my resume. So... We want to be a little careful. We're not saying when it says that this child will be the everlasting father, we're not saying that the child, the son of God, is also or, or is the everlasting father. We're, we're not saying he's taking on the form, the father is taking on the form of the son. Let me, let me back up and use a fancy word and then explain it and maybe it'll be clearer than what I just said because I even confused myself there a second ago. We are not saying that this passage is saying, uh, 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 we're not modalists. Modalists are, are these It's a heresy that says that God is one person who will manifest himself three different ways. So right now he's the Father, whoop, now he's the Son, whoop, now he's the Holy Spirit. The the, the modern version of this really says that, that, that there is an Old Testament God, a New Testament God, and a God right now. The Old Testament God, that's God the Father. He was the angry one. New Testament God, that's the son. He's the one that came with mercy and grace and, and, and the WWJD bracelets. Okay? And then the, the now God, that's the Holy Spirit, the one who's left behind for us. And, and actually, that is not what the Bible teaches. 
What the Bible teaches is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not interchangeable. They're actually distinct. So the Father didn't die on the cross. The Son didn't send the Father into the world. The Holy Spirit wasn't born of a virgin. So we, as a church, we confess, as as the Scripture confesses, as the church throughout all ages and all places has confessed, that God is one singular eternal being. He is eternally three distinct persons within that one being, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and that is called the Trinity. Now, each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, contains the whole undivided divine essence of God without anything remaining afterwards. It's not like they didn't cover all of God's essence. So we can say that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father and the Son. And you're sitting there like, exactly. After I thought this morning, there is one God made up of three eternal persons, the same and yet different. Does your head hurt? It should. Because here, let me explain something to you. For too long, oh, this is a soapbox. I've got to be real careful. For too long, within our churches, within our church, we have treated God as somebody who can be studied with a microscope. You cannot study God with a microscope. In order to study God with a microscope, you would have to be bigger than God. We must study God with a telescope. We must try to drink it all in, and then every day as we zoom in just a little more, our minds blow up just a little bigger. Not because we've been able to contain the full knowledge of him, but because he blows our minds. Listen, you do not want a God that fits in a book. Well, this book, I read it, explains God perfectly. If that's your God, I want no part of him. You don't want a God who fits inside your hand. No, 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 no. You want to fit inside of God's hand. And that's how big our God is. And so, yes, the Trinity is not simple to understand. I just want to make sure that we're very careful as we look at this. What is this saying when it calls him the everlasting father? It's the easiest to understand. And that that was all the confusing part for us nerds. Now, let me jump to this part. He's saying that Jesus is not the father. But he's saying Jesus is the one who cares for us with father-like qualities. He's still God the son. But his love and grace for us is like that of a daddy with his children. Which leads me to the next major concern we have to deal with before we can finish the message. When I say that Jesus has daddy-like qualities in his care and concern for his children, that makes it very personal for every single one of us. It also makes it very complicated. Maybe... Your dad was fantastic. Maybe you have nothing but great and and wonderful memories about your dad, and that is wonderful. You should praise God for that. I would even say you should not keep that quiet. Silent gratitude does no one any good. If you had a daddy, when we talk through this, and you're like, no, my dad gave me nothing but great memories, you should first thank God, and then you should thank him. Because for a lot of people... The reality is they don't have wonderful memories of their dad. In in fact, some of the greatest pain in their lives is attributed to their relationship or lack of relationship with their dad. 
And I don't know what camp you fall in. Maybe your dad was never there. Maybe he abandoned you when you were little. Maybe he wasn't there and it wasn't his fault. Maybe he passed away early and there, there was no possibility of him being able to be there for those key moments in your life. Maybe he was physically present, but wasn't really there. He was too busy. He never really paid that much attention to you. Maybe all you can remember is how disappointed he always seemed to be in you. Maybe you never really connected with him. And maybe, and likely with a church this size, he was abusive. Emotionally, physically, sexually. So, so for whatever reason, when I talk about Isaiah pointing to Jesus as being the one who wants to be your everlasting father, it doesn't do a lot for you. And I'd hate for you to read this beautiful name and hear, uh, and, and hear the promise that's being given, and instead of glorying in the grace that you then begin to doubt the goodness of the promise. We can't allow our own personal experience to find the term everlasting father. What we've got to do and fight to do, and, and someday, I'll get into my whole story with y'all, but we all have to do this. It's a wrestling match, and it's hard, and it takes years. But you have to allow Jesus, his words, his actions, his promises, to show you what it means that he's going to be your everlasting father. So, so I'm going to shoot straight. I do not. I mean, the worst part about this is I have to deal with that, because if I don't, it's the undealt with thing that you're all thinking about throughout the whole message. Then the problem is, is once I name it and deal with it, the very real possibility is you sit here and, and I've brought up now past hurts, and so now it's like, oh, and now, now I'm never going to bring you back. What I want to do desperately is point you to the good that God offers to you in Jesus by calling him your everlasting father. I don't want you to miss this. So there's questions that come up out of difficult relationships with our daddies, and I'm gonna, I want to make sure that I answer those questions without posing them as questions. I'm just going to blow right through this real quick and make sure you know what it means that Jesus is your daddy, is your everlasting daddy. It's this. Number one, he likes you. He likes you. Many of us have spent our entire life trying to gain acceptance so many times, trying to live up to our family name, trying to, to carry um, um, the, the weight or the burden that our daddy has placed upon us, and we just can never satisfy him. And then what happens is we carry that pressure into our relationship with Jesus. And, and, and I'm, I'm sure there are, it's not just a handful of us, I'd say it's probably the majority of us in this room have spent time thinking to ourselves, if I was just better at this, then dad would if I was just better at that, then he would, and it's not a far leap to go, and if I was just a better witness, then God would like me more. If I was better at reading my Bible, then God would be pleased with me more. If I was just, and you were to run through that whole, whole gamut, what you need to realize is there is nothing you can do to make Jesus like you more. But even better than that, there is nothing you can do to make Jesus like you less. Why would he like me? Because you're his. Behold what manner of love the Father has given in us, that we should be called 
sons and daughters of God. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. You're his. Your value has been given to you. You are his workmanship, Ephesians says. You are his masterpiece, his, his artwork. You are his beloved. You are his child. And, and let's be honest. There's a lot of parents in here. Parenthood is this weird thing, isn't it? You have a baby. It moves into your house. Worst roommate ever. Right? This thing does nothing but cry, scream, poop, get in the way of your intimate time with your wife. I mean, it's this worst roommate ever. A man. That kid is yours. That kid is yours. He likes you. He cares about you. It's two meanings of the word care. I'm going to start with compassion first. Compassion is a, is a feeling, an emotion of distress for the suffering or, more, or misfortune of another person. And, and, and it includes the desire to alleviate that distress, that suffering, that misfortune for that person. When Jesus sees us in our suffering, when he sees us in our distress, when he sees the mess we've made of our lives, ourselves, he's not filled with rage. He's got compassion on us. Isaiah 43, verse 4 says, because you are precious in my sight. That's compassion. And it's interesting, Isaiah 49, 15 says, can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, I will not forget you. So, so what he's asking is, is it possible that a, that a woman forgets her newborn child? Well, and then he says, well, okay, it might be possible, but for God, eh, eh. Never going to happen. I find it interesting that, that Isaiah leaves fatherhood and jumps to the picture of a mom to show us how Jesus cares about us. Because, let's be honest, uh, moms are way more attentive. There was a time when uh, <laughs> my wife was like, hey, did you, did you see Amber got another tooth? Amber's the second one, right? <laughs> uh... Now, Amber didn't get a new tooth. She's 20. That'd be creepy. Okay, so that's from a little years ago. That's the care and compassion that Jesus has for you. Matthew says, and joke as you will, not a hair falls from your head that God doesn't notice. Praise God. <laughs> Maybe he could help me find a few. Matthew 9 tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. He wanted to help them because as he looked at them, he said they looked like sheep that had no shepherd. He didn't hate them for being lost. He didn't cuss them out because of their sin. He didn't shake his head and walk away. Jesus' desire, I think Luke says it, Jesus' desire was to act like a mother hen and gather the chicks underneath to protect them. He's not just compassionate for you. He also cares for you. Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels you observe my rest. You are aware of all that I do. 
Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live at the eastern horizon or I settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, well, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night will shine like the day. See, God, it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless, and all the days of my life were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast are the sum of them. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. God cares about you. He has known you before anybody else knew you. How valuable are you to him? He says, even if you made your bed in hell, he's still there. And guess what? That's exactly where you made your bed. And God showed up. I skipped one of the verses in the middle, verse 6 of Psalm 139. It says this, this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I'm unable to reach it. As David considered God's care for him. It outran him. But not only does he care for you, he'll be there for you. He's never going to forsake you. He's never not going to show up for you. And maybe that's not true for you in your relationship with your dad. I don't know. I think all the horror movies that are on the Hallmark Channel right now, that's true. That's how I view them anyway. The, the, the re- the reality is, is, is dads usually aren't in the picture. That's what makes the story so strong. And, and for me, it's like, why, why? okay, I don't identify with the horror movies on Hallmark. Instead, let me go here, and some of you will understand. Uh, there's this character named Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. His dad never showed up. It's such a dumb illustration. <laughs> it's just recurring. How could this be emotional? Ricky Bobby left a ticket for his dad at every race. His dad never showed up. The emotional part isn't that. The emotional part is this. Some of you know that feeling. But not with the everlasting daddy. The everlasting daddy will be there 
Man, I get it. I understand why you can doubt it. I, I, you can look around, and sometimes you feel like he's not there. You don't see him for sure, but you cry out, and you, you feel like he's not answering. It feels like your, your prayers aren't even making it to the ceiling. He's, he's not answering you. And that, that's the case with here in Isaiah 9. you got the people looking over the city walls and seeing the eyeballs of the Assyrians who are ready to come in and overthrow them. And, and, and the, the, the Israelites, the, the people of Judah, were rightly afraid of what was coming next. And yes, they needed, they needed God to like them. They, they needed God to care for them, but they needed God to be present with them in that moment. They needed to know that their daddy wasn't going to drop them, but they're just not seeing it. And while we may not see him at the moment, we can be sure he's with us. He's holding us. He's never abandoning us. He's never not showing up. Psalm 139, you are there. It doesn't matter where I go, east, west, Sheol, heaven, you are there everywhere. Matthew 28 he sends us out, and everywhere you go, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you, I will never abandon you, I will never forsake you. The word in Greek for never means never. Deep, huh? Never. Never. He likes you. He cares about you. He'll be there for you. He loves you. I don't mean the pithy little smile, Jesus loves you. No. He love, loves you. Because that's what a dad does. Dad loves you even though he knows you. Dad isn't afraid to speak truth. But he's also not arrogant enough to refuse to show grace. As often as dads can say they love you, real love is demonstrated when it costs something. And think about one of Jesus' most popular parables. Uh, it's known for a number of different titles, but probably the most popular title is the parable of the prodigal son. You have this dad who's got two boys, a younger and an older, which is usually how it works if you have two. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and the younger comes and says, Dad, give me what's coming to me. Give me my inheritance. I want it now. I want to cash in. Now, dad and everybody listening to the parable at the time knew full well what that meant. That meant that the youngest son was skipping town, and he was viewing his father as dead. This relationship is over. Give me what I want, and I'm getting out. And, and I don't understand why the father did, but he did. And you know the story how the young man went and spent all of his money and then was in a place of just, I won't say grief-stricken, that might be an overstatement, but he was in poverty. And a thought occurred to him, and he, he makes the comment that even my dad's servants eat better than this. How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am, dying of hunger? So the young man makes a decision. I'm going to get up, 
I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say, Dad, I have sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Hire me so I can be like one of your hired workers. Uh, just aside, that, that's a picture of repentance. A picture of repentance is being willing to do whatever it takes to be made right. The young man begins on his journey home, and, and, and what we don't get right away, we get a little bit later in this telling of the story. What we recognize is that dad is so emotionally connected to this youngest son that he couldn't possibly be happy while he was away. Every day that the son was gone, daddy stood at the door waiting for his son to come home. Every day. I am sure he had other things to do. But, but when that kid was wandering and hurting, dad could not focus. And so now what you have is dad standing at the door looking away down the road. And then you get this youngest son who's walking up the road rehearsing his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. If you would just make me like one of your hired servants, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Okay, maybe if I do it the other way. I mean, he's rehearsing his speech. And as, as dad looks out and sees this young man returning home, dad can't help himself. He grabs the corner of his robe, he kicks off his sandals, and he sprints off the front porch to receive his son home again. And he, he falls, he gets to his son, and his son begins, all right, father, uh, I have, I've sinned against you, and that's all he gets out. Because daddy covers him with kisses, weeps upon him, embraces him, holds on to him, brings him back to the house and said, son, here is a robe, here is a ring, here are some sandals, let's party! Think that cost the dad? Forget the money. Forget the inheritance he paid out already. Dad knew what his son was up to. Dad knew full well that his youngest son looked him in the eye and said, you are dead to me. Dad knows how far the young man ran, and yet he still over-graced him. Prodigal means reckless abandon. And you could say the youngest son went and lived with reckless abandon. He just spent all of his money. But you could also say that the prodigal one in that story is the dad. Because when that young man came back, daddy held nothing back. That's love. And that's grace. And that's how Jesus views us. That's what it means for Jesus to be our everlasting father. To be known and still be loved. I'm going to ask as the worship team comes back, we're going to close our message time a little bit different this morning. I want to just remind you, when you get to the end of the story of the prodigal son, what you need to know is there is no command. There's no checklist. There's no to-do list. What there is is silence. It stops. There is awe. Because Jesus intended for us to stop and reflect on what it means to be loved like that. I mentioned it already once. I'm going to hit it again. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called sons and daughters of God. 
Now listen, when you hear that, I think you hear, behold what manner of love. You think Shakespeare, right? Stop that. What it's meant to say is this. Stop everything that you're doing. Put it all aside. No more distractions. Forget the phone. Forget the TV. Forget other people. Stop everything that you're doing. And consider the love the Father has for you. And I want to do just that. I want to reflect, and for all of us to reflect, on what it means to be loved just like that. So they're going to sing a song, and I'm going to encourage you that that would be your effort to reflect, to stop all that you're doing, to behold the love that God has showed to you by adopting you as his son or his daughter. And I, and I don't know how you best reflect. Maybe you, maybe you stay seated, maybe you stand, maybe you bow, maybe you raise your hands. Really, there's no prescription about how you behold the love God has for you. You just need to behold the love God has for you.